Yama. Welcome to Blackademia, a podcast of yarns with First Nations academics of these lands now commonly referred to as Australia. I'm your host, Amy Tunig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present, and to the lands on which this podcast is recorded and streamed. Listeners are advised that this podcast, its associated website and social media presence may contain the voices and or images of First Nations people who have since passed. Discretion is advised. This is episode four of season one, and today's guest is Professor Anita Heiss. Anita is a proud member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales and is one of Australia's most prolific and well-known authors, publishing across genres including non-fiction, historical fiction, commercial fiction and children's novels. She's also a marathoner. As an advocate for Indigenous literacy, Anita has worked in remote communities as a role model and encouraging young Indigenous Australians to write their own stories. On an international level, she's performed her work and lectured on Aboriginal literature across the globe at universities, conferences, consulates and embassies. Anita is proud to be a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and an ambassador of Warrawa Aboriginal College, the Go Foundation and the Sydney Swans. She's on the board of the State Library of Queensland and in recent months was appointed a Professor of Communications at the University of Queensland. Yama Professor Heiss, thank you for joining me here on Blackademia. Oh, you give me a run. That's a Rodri for good day. And thanks for having me. I'm excited. You have such an incredible portfolio of work, but before we get into your formal roles, could you please introduce yourself in terms of who's your mob and can you tell me a little bit about family or community life? So uh, you and do yeah the highest fella do a Rodri Geelung, a Ramaji Bull, Brugley Bull, Meagundi, Bala Williams. So I've said I'm Anita Heiss, I have Wiradjuri belonging from uh, Brungle and from Rambi and I'm a Williams. So my mob's really around, um, you know, Chimit, Brungle, Griffith, Cowra, um, Canberra and my immediate family, mum and my siblings live in Sydney but I live on the land of the Yuggera people in, in South Brisbane and, um, oh, so I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, on loan up in Brisbane, I guess. And when you're up here, you do say you are a Queenslander. <laughs> but I go to Sydney, get back to Sydney as much as I can. So I was born and bred on the land of Durrawal Mob at Nilaparoos and so, so socialised, uh, educated, employed mainly in Gadigal country. Your listeners will know that as the city of Sydney. And um, I guess my connections i you know i go back to country quite a lot i've been studying my language and nation building at charles State university in wagga so i go back to country oh, quite a few times a year and i'm really fortunate to be able to have to be able to do that logistically being so far mm. from home but that gives me uh, it grounds me and reminds me of what i'm what my purpose is and the best thing i've ever done is actually doing that course i'm um, an ambassador for the go foundation which is the Michael Lachlan Adam Goods Foundation, which focuses on education for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I'm excited about doing that. I've been doing that for a year. And I'm a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, not because I'm an author, not because I'm a black fella, but because I understand that our mob needs to be literate because literacy and reading opens the doors to all of life's opportunities. And while 
our kids and our old people are super intelligent, particularly in remote communities, knowing, you know, three or four languages. And yeah. I always say I don't even have even mastered English. Uh, the reality is if if our mob can't read and write in English, it means that they're relying on white fellas to make decisions for them every day. And that's not self-determination. We need to be able to make decisions for ourselves. So um, I'm very passionate about the ILF and I've been doing that, oh gosh, since about 2008, I think. And also an ambassador for Warrawa Aboriginal Girls College, which is a college down in Halesville. And it has it's a boarding school with two-way learning. So they, the students do the VCE, but they also do uh, cultural learning as well. And very passionate about that because I think we need to have educational spaces that's, that work for our, our mob. And the director there, of course, is Annie Lois Peeler, who your listeners may or may not know um, was one of the sapphires, but she was also the first Aboriginal model in Australia and wow. possibly one of the most elegant women I've ever met, very strong and powerful and scary at times um, because she's also passionate about education for our people as well. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And thank you for sharing with us the value of these organisations because sometimes when we're not familiar with their specific work, it can be a bit confusing. And I think that's really valuable information. So you are a published author. You are so many things, as I read out in the bio at the start. Can you tell me what came first, being an author, being an academic? I'd love to hear about the intersecting nature of these works. Really good question. You know, and I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that before. And um, well, the interesting thing was I was, I had no desire to be an academic. And I will say that I've never, um, I, I've never embraced or owned the title of academic that well. I've never, particularly because my, my life as an author is so much bigger. My output as an author is so much bigger than it has been as an academic, although I've published my thesis a long time ago but um so i've never i've never considered myself an academic because my creative brain has always been stronger but what, what was i got i i became an academic as it were because i was in canada i was on on the mohawk reserve working on the news on their newspaper called the eastern door completely um uh, privately owned by a local mohawk gentleman uh, Kenneth Deer, all the staff were local Mohawks from, you know, um, editors, writers, photographers, the marketing people and so forth. I went from there to work on the National Native Newspaper and I, I used the term native because that's the term that they use mm. um, called Windspeaker and it was completely different. So the publisher and I think the bookkeeper were, were native or, or Métis as they say if you've got one French parent, but everybody else was non-native and I found that experience quite extraordinary and it made me start thinking about how do we publish back home and who mm. are our audiences and so forth and I decided literally while I was in Canada in 1995 that I would um, try and enrol in a PhD, not to be an academic, because, but only because I was interested in the re in this area and I needed structure. And if I had I not enrolled, I'd probably still be trying to research. But it, while I was in Canada also, I got an acceptance for my first manuscript uh, called Sacred Cows, which had been knocked back by every major publishing house in the country. I was accepted by Magabala Books. So everything sort of happened at the same time. So I enrolled in a PhD at the University of Western Sydney, which is now called Western Sydney University. Um, after, I will say, I felt like 
my attempts to enrol at UTS were completely kiboshed by the people I spoke to there. They weren't Indigenous people at the time. And I was really disheartened by that. And mm. I rang up West University of Western Sydney and they were so welcoming and and really made an effort to um, have me as part of the university. And as it turned out, I was the first Aboriginal person to graduate with a PhD from the University of Western Sydney. Wow. Which was, it was exciting and wonderful, but also... The reality is the Greater Western Sydney is home to, yeah. or was at the time, the largest population of Aboriginal people yeah. in the country. Yeah. Surrounded by blackfellas out there. Yeah, that's where most they of my family have, live. <laughs> yes, but they yeah. should have been churning out Absolutely. You know, those grades. It is what it is. It's, you know, it is what it is. So, um, so you know, I enrolled in 1996 and then in 1996, at the end of 1996, my first book came out, Sacred Cows, and I had no idea that I was going to write another book. I had no desire to write another book. Um, you know, so then I'm working on churning, working on my PhD, and during that time, my PhD is on Aboriginal literature and publishing. I self-publish a book of poetry because I want to learn about the process. Yeah. And so I do that to learn about how it all works, and it's very interesting, and then my PhD is, you know, uh, I, I graduated in 2001, I think, and um, 2003, may have, might have been, two, it was 2001, sorry, five years I graduated, and then that, we, that came out as a publication in 2003, but in that time I'm approached by Scholastic to do a novel on the Stolen Generations, of which I'd never written a novel, I never thought I would write a novel, um, but it was an easing into the process of writing creative historical fiction, I should say, because it, there was a structure. It was a diary format. It was 40,000 words. The voice was a 10-year-old girl. So it was an easy way to move in for me. Mm. And that's now been translated into Mandarin and Farsi and Spanish and French and has been taught on curriculum since 2003 that came out. So really, and then I sort of started moving more and more into writing I spent, I was writer in residence at Macquarie University in 2004 and then applied to be director of Indigenous Studies, the Indigenous Studies Unit um, at Macquarie. And so I was Michael McDaniel's deputy and Michael McDaniel, and he's an extraordinary human being. Uh, Michael McDaniel, of course, now is the PVC Indigenous Leadership and Engagement yep. at University of Technology in Sydney. So... Um, I spent a couple of years doing that, but the, it's, what's interesting is when you're an academic, um, you know, I, I had 215 students per semester and mm -hmm. I did most of all my own marking. So there's the, the, the lectures, then there's the marking and so forth, and there's a whole lot of admin, and I was deputy director, and so um, being creative just got put on the back burner. And back in those days... Creative output wasn't counted as, um, you know, there were no points in creative output. So I, I thought I'm not getting, I'm expected to publish, but I'm not getting credit for anything that I published in my area. So I left teaching and I left academia in 2006 and literally within a year I finished three projects. Wow. And what came out was um, Avoiding Mr. Right came out in 2007 and also I'm Not Racist But came out in 2007 and uh, I think Year Around a Deadly Dog Demon came out in 2007 and I started that in 2004. It's just a kid's novel. So I just, it was about time and, yeah. I, and I found I, I'm best served to make change 
not necessarily um, in the lecture theatre at university, although I'm loving being back in that now, but through my creative works. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that's so interesting. I think you, you mentioned something that perhaps would be a surprise to some listeners, and that's that you don't have to do a PhD to be an academic. If you want to be an academic, you basically do need a PhD now, but you can do a PhD for other purposes. And, um, you know, my PhD is looking at why sovereign women choose to be academics. And what I've noticed is that there's something like 700 First Nations PhD holders in this continent, but only about 200 of them actually work as academics. And um, I liked that point that you raised around, for you, it wasn't to become an academic, but it was about a structured way of engaging in research that was of interest to you. Because we're seeing this with elders out on country engaging in PhDs now to be in control of formally capturing um, knowledges that they want shared in that way. And I think that's so exciting, um, but probably would be news to a lot of people that it's a possibility. It's true. And there's, there's a couple of things there. So I, I wanted to say, I, I didn't have a scholarship. I didn't have anything like that when I did my PhD. I didn't, I did it because I was genuinely interested in knowing how we, how and what and why we were publishing and who was reading our work. I was genuinely interested and I had no idea I'd done an honours degree um, in history. Uh, I was, I was. It was suggested that I do a masters. I said I don't want to do a masters. I had published quite a lot. I'd worked. I'd written, done comic scripts for two years, and I'd done educational comics, and I'd done a whole lot of columns, and I, and I had published. So I had a publications list. So the other thing was, I mean, I graduated, and when or when I enrolled, I think by the time I graduated, there were there were only thirteen or fourteen First Nations people in Australia who had graduated with a PhD. So I had no role models. I had no peers. I had no real support mechanism, even though there was a unit at the university. I pretty much got zero support from that unit at the time. Um, But I'm also very self-sufficient and motivated and and anal about schedules. So I was quite good at, you know, looking after myself. But um, I think... As you say, there's lots of people who, for, for various reasons, do their PhD and so forth. And then, you know, I would never aspire, aspire to be an academic, although my supervisor, my second supervisor was brilliant. And I think that makes the difference to uh, the outcome for each individual. And he kept saying, oh, you'll be worth more money and you'll get a job here. And I go, oh, you know, I'm worth money now. It's not yeah. about that. And um, I think... And I say this in my writing classes, and I said this to the HDR students that I did a workshop for in Brisbane just on the weekend. If you if you are absolutely clear about your purpose, you will never lack inspiration. Yeah. And you will never have writer's block. Like I never have writer's block because every single book that I write, every project on, I know exactly what the purpose of that book is. And so I think what I'll say is that doing the PhD, well, doing even my honours degree, gave me the skills for researching and writing and interviewing that I needed to do my creative work as well. But, yeah, there's, there's people who have PhDs now that who are, um, they get PhDs by their practice, whatever their practice is, not yes. necessarily have, you know, done five years of research or so forth. So I know some people in creative um, spaces who they don't tell anyone they've got a doctorate. They don't They don't put the DR in front of their name because they. I think they kind of like to be underestimated in a way and it's not having people know that isn't part of their purpose. They 
did the PhD to develop those skills and they keep it in their tool belt, um, but they don't necessarily feel comfortable with people calling them, say, doctor. Whereas, you know, I joke to everyone that everyone's calling me doc as soon as I get it. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because I, so I passed my PhD, it must have been, the marks came in and I was at a conference in Sydney, an anti-racism conference, and one of my markers was there. Um, um, and on my name, I was one of the organisers of the conference and on my name badge, it didn't have Dr Anita Heiss. And she said, she pulled me up and she said, why haven't you got that on your badge? And I, and I, and she said, I marked you and you deserve that and you earned that and you should have that on there. And I never thought about it like that. That's one thing because it, 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 back in the day, don't forget there were very few. Yeah. And so, and I wasn't, I was I was proud, but this whole element of the big noting sort of thing. Yeah. In terms of the creative space, and I, I've changed now, I've changed my mind now, but for many, many years, many years I would say I never used it in, in the arts sector because it, it, did, it didn't have relevance in the arts sector. Yeah. Um, and also it sounded like a wank in the arts sector <laughs> because people were artists, not, yeah. you know, doctors and so forth. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's different now because, you know, I have earned my stripes in both sectors and um and it does hold weight and i yeah. know that i can make it i can pretty much pick up the phone and speak to people in the, you know in the hierarchy mm. because i am a professor yeah or because you know even prior to that because i was dr anita heiss in a space where there were not many aboriginal academics yeah yeah but i completely understand why people feel um awkward about it and but you know i and i could because i was like that but i'm not now yeah. I want to be called, see, and heist means hot. So I want oh. to be called hot. <laughs> I want to be called, I want to be introduced as Professor Hot in every stage I walk onto. I love it. I love it. And I think it, yeah, for me, it comes back down to the why and the purpose because there's less than 30 First Nations PhD holders in education. And yeah. for me, I know how many people have sacrificed and worked really hard to help me get to where I am and it does bring I think weight when you're talking about things and it's so easy as Blackfellas to be dismissed um you know they assume that it's just your feelings or it's anecdotal and I think that it's a really simple signifier in certain spaces that no this isn't just anecdotal although sometimes that is enough it's so much more than that. We come in and we've we've earned these roles and we are rightfully standing in those places. And I think... Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, it feels like that, but it does, it kind of, I certainly, you know, would not be calling myself doctor when I'm with the community because they, they're going to ask me for medical advice. They're not going to necessarily give it that, you know, what do you no, mean you're a doctor and you don't know about my sore throat? <laughs> But the funny thing, there's a couple of things there because yesterday, for instance, I got introduced to an elder and my colleague said, uh, you know, so I go, I mean, you know, I would say I didn't get in first. So she says, this is Professor Anita Heiss. And I said, well, I'm Anita and Williams from Cowra. You know, I said, and then he, but he said, oh, my niece has just become a doctor and blah, 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 blah. So there is so, there's so much pride yeah. for elders to say because we've, we're reaping the benefits of the hard slog and the yes. civil rights movement that they fought for so that we had education. That's right. And, you know, it's a running joke when I'm in a theatre and 
you know, black fellas will sit up the back. And I'm like, we had a civil rights movement to sit up the front, you know. And and I always say, we had a civil rights movement so we could have, you know, access to education and housing, which is why I don't like to camp. Yeah. <laughs> five stars only thank you very much sure. uh, you that guys is... can all camp as much as you like yeah. but you're going backwards it's but, so um, true yeah. about the seating though like you go to any first nations related conference and the first two rows are empty and i think yeah. you'll need to get in the front seats because when i'm taking yeah. photos of the speakers it looks like no one's here yeah, and it's because no one wants to sit up the front and uh it's i think it's these these funny tensions around you know, what we're comfortable with, but also taking that space. And, uh, you know, I, I do like, I saw um a little quote shared from one of the awesome Titters pages on Instagram where they said, you know, we decolonize ourselves by taking those seats yeah. our ancestors fought yeah, for us totally. to have. Um, but yeah, it's, but then also you don't want to be the flash black. <laughs> you know? I like that at the front because I want to take photos most yeah. of the time. I mean, I, if I go to a movie or something, I always sit up the back. But I realised when you're in the teaching space, when you're actually on the stage, and I, and I you know, I've done some lectures. Do you know Dr. Marnie Shea? Mm, She's in education familiar. at UQ. Oh, I need to introduce you. Okay. Amazing. She's doing work. She's um, doing work in flexi learning schools. Oh, amazing. That. Amazing. So I should connect you. And so I did a guest lecture for her, and they were education students, non-Indigenous education students. And, you know, I say to them, particularly also in school rooms, the students, if they're naughty, I'm like, if you, any of you aspire to be teachers, you need to understand that standing up the front of the room is not easy. So you need to be respectful in, in, the, in the space there. But I used to say to my students, if you sit up the front, you're more likely to get a high distinction because I'll know who you are. No. <laughs> you know, I remember I had a lecturer say that to me. But, um, you know, no, those... we, we, had the, we had to mark by the bell curve back in yes, the day yes which, which is ridiculous well i hated it because it used to have to push so many brilliant people down yes so, i like... i was knocked down from a hd to a d once yeah, and um, not, i didn't well, i don't know what the purpose of that no because i was like hang on a hd plus a hd plus a hd should equal a hd uh and then when i found out about the bell curve i was very glad now that i mark that we don't have to do that um yeah, no, it that terrible. it's like so against the rules now yeah so we 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 check what where the marks land but we don't um we don't force it thank goodness right, right. um so you are now a professor of communications what does that mean well i think i need to say um my role is quite specific based on my experience and I'm only 0.4. So for your listeners, I'm two days a week, which is very uh, long. So I don't have a course that I, I don't have a course load. I don't, uh, I don't supervise students and so forth. So I do a, a whole series of guest lectures across uh, within the faculty of education and, and communication and the arts and so forth. So I do lectures on my, my, um, writing process on Aboriginal literature, on how to embed Indigenous perspectives in the classroom using Aboriginal voices, because that's my area of expertise. Um, we have in terms of the national curriculum, which I'm an advocate for. I, I do you know, advice to students who may be thinking about writing as a career path. I run masterclasses, uh, writing classes for Indigenous students at UQ and staff. Uh, workshops for HDR students and so forth. As I say, I mentor where I can, and I, um, I guess I lend support also to the, the leadership in the, in the university as well in terms of the PBCIE and the unit director and so forth. 
Wow, what a fantastic value add for that university. This is my dream job, my dream job. And I get to do, you know, public lectures and so forth. So when I spoke to the university about the role, I said I would like to do community engagement, um, I'd like to do public lectures and masterclasses. So I get, I'm getting, to, I'm getting, well, they're using the best skills that I have. Yeah. I do a lot of work with two-thirds of my time is with um, OSLIT, which is the Australian Literary Database, which I've actually been working on and off on in terms of black words, the research community, since 2006. And this role now as Professor of Communications allows me to do um, far more on that in that space and you know so i'm re-rolling out teacher pd we've just done mount isa and rockhampton we've done brisbane yarrabah and torres strait islands or thursday island i should say and we've just we're um, made aware yesterday that we've got a little bit of money from copyright agency to take it to wa next year so ideally we can wow. roll this out um across every state and territory because to my great dismay there are still many, 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 many educators who have very little understanding of the local of their own local history. Yeah. In whatever city or town they're in, um, and therefore have zero idea of how they can best embed Indigenous voices, particularly local voices, into their classroom. Because even though it's a national curriculum, stories and and teaching can be localized content. So. Um, I love doing that because people who come along are desperate for and, and craving the best ways to do their job. And my job is to make their job easier. So I get to talk about Aboriginal writers and it's, it's wonderful. That sounds so good. I think it's such a funny thing. Um, it, it's frustrating when when I'm in a room of educators, particularly when they're academics, and they'll say things like, oh, well, I just don't know where to find any of this stuff. And I think looking for information and sharing it is literally the role of a teacher, you know, but I feel like the, the conditioning that we get from young ages about, um, you know, deficit thinking of first nations people and knowledges, it's like they get this little block, you know, they don't even, they don't even look for us in, you know, the, the library depositories and, and all these places. And yet there is so much there. And so, um, Oslid is one of the, the spaces that, that I send them to because we have these fantastic collections. Uh, and I know at Macquarie at the moment, they're actually working on um, bringing all of the First Nations publications together specifically within the library. So then when people are wanting to make sure they're engaging with stuff about us by us, it'll, it'll be that little bit simpler because it can be really tricky, especially when people write about us and they don't position themselves. And so... Yes when they publish extensively to do with First Nations people and things, people think that they're black. Um, Why not? And it's like, well, you need to position yourself, please. <laughs> That's right. Well, and, and so we, I guess there's a couple of things there. First of all, I used to do the book buying for the library at Macquarie. I had a budget for the Indigenous unit for the two or three years I was there. So that was great because literally there was a budget there that was never spent. Mm. And I couldn't believe that. And then so we just, well, this is a long time, it's 15 years ago, 14, 15 years ago. So got to, you know, started building up the collection back then. But it is one of the issues. So really simple things that must say, for instance, my local library has been doing for years at Bowen Library in Maroubra, just putting the Koori flag, the Aboriginal flag on the spines of books in the in the library, whether it's novels or kids' books, or whatever, so that anybody who comes along and goes, 
that they know that that book is authored by an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person, right? What so a great idea! Painful. Oh my goodness! Genius! And then so people just go right, okay. So on the spine, on the spine, easy. And so in in Auslit, when people go to Auslit, they know if they see the black words emblem, and I tell the teachers if yep. you see that emblem next to the bio, that's when you know that that author is an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander author. If it's not there and you still want to use that book, you need to understand that that is not an Indigenous perspective, but that is Indigenous studies. That That, that is the study of. Yes. So anything that's written by a white fellow about black fellows, my personal view is that's Indigenous studies. Yeah. And so there are still so many people. I mean, I've met teachers who were doing primary school and wanting picture books. They've never heard of Magabala books. I don't even know how that is possible. How can you be a school teacher and not a primary school teacher and not have heard of a publishing house that's yeah. been around since 1988? Yeah. And you've been teaching for decades. Yeah. Books produces the best quality children's books with purpose. Yeah. I believe in the country. Yeah. So, um, you know, having said that, and I get gobsmacked all the time um, in those spaces where I'm working with teachers and educators, they leave grateful and they and armed, armed with material. And so, that that is the joy in my job. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. What is your favourite part of being a black academic? Okay. Well, I need to say that obviously I've just moved back into academia this year because I was writing full-time for the last decade Um, and I was writing and I was managing a philanthropic foundation. Then I moved back into academia this year. So what I will say is the favourite part for me um, is really that I exist within a network of extraordinary people. And I'm going to talk about just my institution, really. So with the opportunity, I have support, but the opportunity to debrief and dissect mm. um, policy related to particularly our university, but that it impacts nationally. Um, and I think that opportunity is not the same and that experience is not the same as being an author. Although I will say Brisbane has an incredibly tight uh, writing community. <sighs> Obviously I spent hours and hours and hours and days and weeks writing by myself to get, you know, to a point of my last novel submitted 92,000 words. It's almost a PhD. Wow. So I, the best thing about me is actually I, I work in a space where it's safe to say that every single person that I work with uh, at UQ in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit, their entire focus is Murray student outcome. I shouldn't mm. say Murray because there's students from everywhere. So, you know, Indigenous students outcome. And it's such a joy to walk in and everybody's just focused on what's the best thing that we can do for our students. How can we get the best outcomes for our students? So I love that. Mm. I love that. And because I'm only part-time, um, it's it's like a treat really to yeah. go in there. And, um, and I'm also working with some extraordinary humans. So I've got, you know, Bronwyn Fredericks, who's a PVC Indigenous Engagement, and to watch her her in action. She can, whether it's on campus or at an event off campus, she manages to engage and bring into the conversation, even when it's really difficult and it's a conversation that could otherwise be quite divisive and in other spaces it's quite divisive. She manages to bring everybody into a space and makes them feel and believe, and and genuinely, she genuinely that their opinions matter and count and that everybody has a place and purpose. And I've never seen, I don't think I've, any, I've seen anybody like that. So I love being able to work in that space with her as a peer and, and Tracy Bunder who started this year. Yeah. So I feel like there's this group of 
three women who have different skills yep. we have different areas of expertise and so forth but collectively we we can make a whole and i just i love that i love that like i text them. when i first started i'd be texting my colleagues saying oh are you in today i'm in today <laughs> so it's like it, it keep going on a school excursion i was and i mean it's, that's a good way to be at the age of yeah. 50 to start to go back into the in, into a university environment where i know when i left I was quite disillusioned because mm. it was really about bums on seats. Yeah. It wasn't about teaching. I went to teaching and learning meetings, but we didn't talk about teaching and learning. We talked about how many students can we get in every subject because it was about money. Yeah. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted to teach and I wanted to see the light bulbs go on. And and because I do the guest lectures all over the shop now, I get to I get to reach a broader audience and um, and internationals who have never necessarily even thought about Aboriginal Australia before and I, I, I find lots of joy in that. That's beautiful. It sounds like an incredible community there at UQ and I'm in no way surprised because even in their writing, um, you know, Professor Bunder and, and Professor yeah. Fredericks, their writing is so yeah. warm and yeah. it just brings you in. Uh, I, it was Professor Fredericks and Professor Walter's work who really opened my mind to being present in what you produce. You know, when I read their work, I see them rather yeah. than it being this kind of colder or, you know, faux ob objective, um, mm -hmm. subjective type position. It's um, you, you read them and you can see them there. And I just think that's amazing. For me, they're very inspiring. So I'm, I'm loving seeing what's, what's coming out. And, of course, Professor Frederick's amazing on Twitter as well, yes. which is incredible. Um, and I think if you see the way that um, Professor Fredericks um, shares on Twitter, what all those posts are really about, they're uplifting. Yes. They are empowering. Yep. She doesn't engage in toxic negative no. commentary. It's really about promoting her staff, her students, but also staff and students at other universities and really shining a light on all the good things that are happening that fall through the cracks unless you've got someone like her doing that. Yeah. And I really, and, and even sitting at a, in a meeting, staff meetings or, you know, academic meetings with her and or Tracy Bunder, just watching the way that they um, control a space. And I mean that in, an, in a positive way. Yeah. And people listen. Yeah. And that's what we need. Yeah. So it's just amazing to be in that, you know, that cohort. Yeah, as an outsider of that institution, um, I feel like through Professor Frederick's sharing, you get a great sense of kind of what is it on what's what's available to the HDR cohort as well. I feel like her way of communicating is very open and inviting, and um, inspires me in terms of how we communicate our space and what the opportunity is for mob in these spaces. I find it beautiful. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so in the lead up to this podcast, speaking about Twitter, I asked Twitter what they would like to hear about from Blackademics. And uh, I have two questions for you. Uh, at Alice underscore TPS asks, who has championed, supported and or mentored you? Great question, Alice. I would have to say in the early days, so we're looking at about 15, 16 years ago, I would say Michael McDaniel, who back then was the director of Indigenous Studies at 
Macquarie, the Warra Warra Aboriginal Studies Centre there. Um, but I've just, I just realised prior to that, he he got me in as a guest lecturer years before that um, at UTS because he was originally at UTS, then he went to Macquarie, then he went to University of Western Sydney, then back to UTS. So Michael really, um, I've never seen anybody, I've never seen anybody lecture like he does. So we co-lectured. He was director. I went on to be deputy, his deputy, and we co-taught the Indigenous Studies 101, you know, introduction. And I've never seen anybody have students on the edge of their seats for three hours and with one piece of paper in front of him. He's an extraordinary storyteller, amazing. And I've learned so much from the way in which he he spoke Mm. and taught. And I still I still make reference to his quotes of his from back then today. Like I'm sure I quoted him this week in Mount Isa in Rockhampton. So I'd have to say uh, he is someone who um, got me to start teaching, which I'll always be grateful, and an incredible mentor in those early days. And most recently, obviously, I've mentioned um, Professor Fredericks and Professor Bunder. But I would say in my very, albeit small but strong um supporter base mutual support and respect i would say professor peter Adol down at the university of canberra and we've done some work together in recent years but he's kicking goals and doing amazing things for indigenous education and increasing indigenous employment at the university and opportunities for students so i would most definitely um, count him as one of my great supporters and champions and and um dr sandra phillips Oh, who is yeah. now at UTS as well. So Sandra and I have had a long relationship. She used to be a publisher She at, at Aboriginal Studies Press. She was a publisher at the time of um, my PhD being published as Dulu Yala, came out of Aboriginal Studies Press, and she was the publisher then. And, of course, she'd previously been at Megan Fowler and she'd been at UQP. So we've had a, 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 a relationship since the 90s. Well, Were you even born in the 90s? 88. <laughs> So you're a child. So we were, you know, so we've known each other and and done the academic writing publishing um, journey at different times along the way. And we we both sit on the board of the State Library of Queensland and the Indigenous Advisory uh, Group of of the State Library of Queensland. So um, we, even though she's in New South Wales now and even though Peter's in Canberra, we, you know, have an ongoing um, peer, friend, uh, respectful relationship. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's really nice. There's something beautiful about those long-lasting friendships and the reciprocity that can come from from those. Uh, and our second question is from at Just Pep, and they ask, do you engage in self-care you would like to share? Well, Just Pep, it's interesting because today I'm doing this podcast and it's actually my mental health day. And the minute I decided that Thursday this week was going to be mental health day, I felt an enormous sense of relief. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time on the road. I spent a lot of time also working from home and uh, over at university, deadlines for books. And I've also been studying uh, a great search the last two years as well. So I can constantly feel like my brain is ready to explode, which also impacts your health and wellbeing when you're completely working nonstop and so forth. So I quite regularly will give myself um, a day just to do admin. I've booked myself in for, I don't know, some sort of line facial today and I'll go and have a steam and a sauna. I 
done a weights training session and I'm going to a 3.30 movie. I'm going to see whatever is on the screen and I'm going to have popcorn and uh, chop chop. But it's, I think it's what's, it's really important, particularly for people who work for themselves um, and for three days of my week or really five days because I work weekends as well. Nobody is there to tell me it's time to bundy off. Mm. Nobody's telling me you need to take holidays and so forth. Mm. And I've worked for myself for so long that um, it was only once when I sat down, I have a life coach and one I've had a life coach since 2003 and I mapped out my year and I put the calendar in front of her and Geraldine said, what's wrong with this? And I said, well, nothing. I think that's pretty much what I've got planned for the year. And she said, there's not one holiday in there. Yeah. And I realized that every, when you were, when you have a nine to five job as a, you know, you get four weeks holiday, you get leave, you get sick leave and you are told to take leave. And when you work for yourself, no one's telling you to do that. And so I had to learn to make, make time and, and have days off. So when I finish speaking to Amy, I will do probably an hour of emails and then I'm going to shut my computer till at least six o'clock tonight. Um, but it's really important. I think exercise is the key thing because I have lots of friends when they've gone into academia or they've gone into politics or high-level leadership roles, everybody gains weight. Mm. First thing that goes is time for exercise and time to think about preparing healthy meals. I don't cook. Um, I'm not a very good cook at all. So, you know, I'm going to boil four eggs in a minute because they're high in protein and surprisingly they fill you up. But what I'm good at is I'm good at doing getting up and running for 5Ks or going to the gym. So that's good for me. I do it for my head as yeah. much as wanting to eat chocolate. Um, so I think exercise for me, time out. I'm really good at having a power nap. Oh, yeah. And those they're little things, but they're things we have to let us do, because if you're I was saying to the HDR students the other day, when I did my PhD, I read somewhere that if you do five intense hours of study on your PhD a day, that's equivalent to about eight hours of, you know, fluffing about. So I would work 10 to three every day focused and I'd feel, and it's true, I'd go to the library for five hours and I'd get an enormous amount of work done and then I could have a swim at the end of the day or whatever I wanted to do, have a glass of wine or something. But, um, yeah, I just think we need to be really conscious of our of our emotional and mental well-being and that a lot of that comes from being physically well mm. and, and sleep, good sleep, which I don't sleep very well, um, so it's now training myself. I just literally started doing meditation to relax hmm. i'm hearing a lot of intention like you you set the intention and you're very conscious to do it yeah. Yeah. um that sounds so important i know that um i i we, we're part of a beautiful school community and some of the school parents you know they they notice that i'm going 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 very very busy and uh i had said to them oh i just have to get through this month and then everything yeah. will slow down. And uh, one of them gently reminded me, you know, that month's come and gone and you don't oh. seem to have slowed down. And uh, I did the same thing. I looked at my schedule and I realised that I hadn't stopped in a year. Uh, school holidays, nope, I just work around it. Take the kids with me. We can do this. <laughs> and and so I've booked in, you know, leave. And I had a lot of leave accrued, actually. Um, and I'm this is the first I'm actually going to take it. But, you know, I think we have so much beautiful opportunity Um and I think I'm so grateful that mm. I get to do the things that I do and I'm so grateful for the 
the hard fights that went into making this space that I find it really hard to step away. So I think it's really great. Uh, I know I feel really good hearing that from you. And I know, um, you know, Professor Fredericks has said on Twitter before the value of exercise um, and these things. And I think it's important for early career academics and those who are doing these things to hear that, well, hang on, you're the ones who have lasted you know, you've been doing this for a couple of decades. You're, you're so productive and you're getting it done and that this is something you value. And so we need to learn that lesson as much as we learn the other ones. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I'm glad you're having a holiday. I think the thing is we're good. We're no good to anybody if we're exhausted. Mm. We're no good. And I know, look, I was on four cities in seven days last like last week. It was Canberra, Brisbane, Mount Isa and Rocky in five days, four cities in five days. It was crazy, whatever it was, right, seven days. I stayed home for two nights, sat on the couch and watched The West Wing, and I can't tell you how much healthier I felt just Mm. by being still. And I think we need to recognise that we can't keep doing nonstop because when you collapse, you you may not recover at all Mm. or you may take a while to recover, but either way, you're good to nobody. You're just good to nobody. And so... Um, I think I have to keep telling myself that it's okay to take a day out because I work weekends anyway and other people don't work. Other people are just doing (laughs) the normal thing, right? And so you can still be crazy and do six days but take a day out. And you remind my brother rang me last year and he said, oh, the year before I think, he said, oh, when are you going to, Anita, when are you going to, we're a bit worried, when are you going to have a break? I said, oh, I'm going, I'm going to go to Hawaii in, in August, so it was a year before, going to in August, yes, yeah, it's March, yeah. right, because it's March. You've got to do something before August. And I said, I run. Running was my relaxation. He goes, no, re- running is not relax. Running is still doing something. You need to sit down and read a book or lo- have a sleep or something. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. You you need to let your body rest and yeah. so forth. And, and I've, I, I, moving to Brisbane taught me that it's okay to lie down under a tree and read a book on Saturday. Because mm. in Sydney, I felt like I had to, I couldn't be inside. I had to be out all the time, all the time. Mm. So I'm really grateful. I have a bike. I'll show you my bike. It's not real, isn't it? <laughs> bought, on, where is oh, it? it's beautiful. I bought it. Get, so I bought it for my 50th last year. I'd never ridden it. <laughs> it's too it. pretty to ride. It looks like well, it should be in a like photo a shoot. Thing, so, I, so I ordered a bike. <laughs> You're so funny. Even buying yourself a bike is being productive. <laughs> She's yeah, giving to a charity. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and wisdom with us here at Black Academia, Professor Heiss. Thank you for having me. That's all we have time for on this week's episode of Black Academia. If you'd like to know more about the incredible Professor Heiss and her work as author and academic, be sure to head to the website, which is www.blackademia.com. Joining me next week on the program is the wonderful Professor Dennis Roy McDermott, who as well as being a professor, a psychologist and a poet, is the inaugural Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous at La Trobe University. Until next week, yalloo!